During his October rally in Queens, the biggest rally of any candidate in the race to date, Bernie Sanders memorably asked the crowd, I want you all to take a look around and find someone you don't know. Are you willing to fight for that person who you don't even know as much as you're willing to fight for yourself? That call to solidarity has resonated broadly, perhaps because many of us seem to intrinsically understand that without solidarity, the diffuse interests of diverse groups of Americans have limited political leverage. In other words, we are much stronger when we stand together. Not me, us. Perhaps nowhere is the need for solidarity greater than in the context of immigration. You see, non-citizens are already vulnerable with limited rights under the law. And for decades, the notion of scarcity has been used to discourage the spirit of hospitality that Lady Liberty's famous inscription claims to represent. Anti-immigrant fear-mongering should never be accepted, ever. But the sad reality is it becomes more persuasive to voters when they feel like they're fighting a zero-sum game, when half of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Life expectancy has gone down for the first time in American history, and mine is the first generation expected to do worse than our parents. As a result, politicians often lean into the idea of a conflict of interest between low-income Americans and immigrants, promising to protect one group at the expense of the other. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. They took our jobs! Yeah, they're down! Took our jobs! In a valiant effort to criticize nativist, racist sentiments, some Democrats have even understated the economic anxieties faced by Americans of all colors. This is a mistake. The best way to cut anti-immigrant sentiment off at the pass I'd argue, is to address scarcity at home. Make sure that all Americans are guaranteed a job through a Green New Deal jobs program. Guarantee we all have free, comprehensive health care, regardless of employment status. When losing a job can mean life or death for you or your family, you become more vulnerable to claims that immigrants present a unique threat. But when immigrants are included as part of labor advocacy, when they have basic rights in the workplace, they become allies rather than an alternative workforce to be exploited by employers. This is the ethos behind Bernie Sanders' immigration policy. It centers labor rights for all and healthcare for all. Bernie makes the case that right-wing austerity arguments, which vilify so-called unworthy minorities, actually hurt everyone. It's a policy that is honest about how American interventionism has driven millions of immigrants from their homes and that our contributions to global warming continue to create millions of climate refugees. It's a plan that is as intersectional as it is humane. And importantly, it's one that was drafted with the input of immigrant staff members here at HQ, including our Latino press secretary, Belen Sisa, who is herself a DACA recipient. 
Earlier this month, while I was on the road, Berlin sat down with Cal Penn, actor, comedian, and former associate director in Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement, to talk about immigration. On this week's Hear the Burn, the two discussed Bernie's immigration policy, as well as Penn's new NBC show, Sunnyside, in which Penn plays a former New York City councilman who ends up helping immigrants in search of the American dream. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, places, and ideas that drive the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters here in Washington, D.C. Stick around to the end, because I had the pleasure of having a quick tete-a-tete with members of U.S. Youth Climate Strike, co-founded by Isra Hersey, daughter of Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar. I was only able to grab them for a moment after they finished filming their endorsement videos last week. But in that short span of time, I feel like I inherited the wisdom of their entire generation. These 15, 16, 17, and 18-year-olds explained ASMR, TikTok, and the root of Bernie's appeal among the youths. And most importantly, they promised to come back and record a full episode with us soon, complete with hot pickles for some experimental ASMR. If that last sentence sounded like gibberish to you, don't worry, the kids will explain. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Hear the Burn. My name is Belen Sisa. I'm the Latino press secretary for Bernie 2020, and I am sitting in today for our incredible national press secretary, Brianna Joy Gray, who's on the campaign trail right now. But I am so happy to be joined by actor and comedian Cal Penn. He's been in many movies and many <laughs> TV shows, among them Harold and Kumar, Designated Survivor, which I'm a fan of thank actually you, thank you. <laughs> um and most recently uh is starring in the show sunnyside so welcome cal thank you thank you for having me <laughs> thank uh, you for being here we're super excited to talk about sunnyside and you know the impact that the show is having you know in a time where politics is getting dangerous for what do you mean people. everything is fine <laughs> everything is fine there's nothing to worry the about. world's not on fire um there are literally no on anywhere. fire yeah. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about Sunnyside and why you chose the location for it and how the idea came to be. Sure. So I co-created the show Sunnyside with uh, my writing partner, Matt Murray, under the Mike Schur banner. Mike Schur created shows that you probably really know and like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Uh Place and kind of generally very diverse reflections of America that are fast. Like you can watch episodes three times and not understand the joke until the third time because it's so fast-paced. So... Matt and I created it under this banner, but the, the first iteration of it was actually about five years ago. I was on a, uh, another very short-lived show, actually. Mm-hmm. And when it ended, I was talking to a friend of mine about, you know, well, what's your dream scenario? What would you want to create if you could? And I said, well, the shows that I loved watching as a kid, things like Seinfeld, for example, mm-hmm. right? I grew up in New Jersey. That took place in New York City. But it was such a homogenous cast, and it mm-hmm. was not the New York that I knew, but still deeply funny. Like, I can't tell you how many Indian uncles I have that remind me of George Costanza. Like, George Costanza <laughs> is a universal character. So as I was growing up, I was like, oh, that's weird that they would purposely kind of exclude all of these communities that live mm-hmm. in that city. 
But it's a slice of life, and they obviously a, a very funny show. So when the opportunity to develop something came around, I kind of thought, well, what's the 2019 version of that? What's the version of that that is reflective of of who we are as Americans? Can you make a patriotic comedic version of what Fresh Prince was to us or what Seinfeld was or even what like Curb Your Enthusiasm, deeply funny, not particularly diverse? And I think there was a way to do it. So we started talking about what that would look like and ended up coming up with what Sunnyside is, which is mm-hmm. a – diverse patriotic comedy that that we think is sort of like a big uh, if if done well we still have four or five episodes that still have to air but but if done well sort of a, a big hug in a way for for mm-hmm. a lot of folks like we want you to feel like you're hanging out with a bunch of your friends yeah in each episode and it was there on a dark deserted sunny side street that things took a turn for the deadly are you podcasting this when hakeem turns out to be a serial killer someone's going to turn it into a podcast might as well be me Brought to you by Squarespace. I definitely got that from the clips that I got to watch. (laughs) I was definitely laughing (laughs) on the first episode. I was like, oh my goodness, this councilman, what is going on? Yeah, I play a really dumb character, by the way. Like, we're we're all kind of dumb on the show. But in particular, I play a city councilman who uh, tries to bribe a cop and gets kicked out of office, has no other job skills. And ends up posting it out on Craigslist saying, you know, mm-hmm. for 50 bucks an hour, I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. And after a lot of degrading requests, this mm-hmm. group of uh, five or six immigrants uh, ask him to, you know, can we hire you for the day to teach us how to prepare for the citizenship test? Mm-hmm. And um, and he says yes. They don't know that he knows even less than they do about the process. And that's kind of just the jumpstart of their friendship. That the irony, too, right? Exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and speaking of, you know, even in the first episode, I noticed that there are some very serious subjects that are tackled, yeah. right? ICE detention, yep. DACA. Listen up. It's been over a week since ICE detained our good friend Drazen, and we still don't have any leads. Look, if we don't do anything, we could lose him forever. He could get transferred. He could get deported. He's probably sitting in a cell somewhere, and I'm his only hope. Anybody have any ideas? Oh, we could bake a file into a birthday cake, and then Drazen could use that to bust his little ass out of there. Like in a Daffy Duck cartoon. (gasps) Well, that's actually more like a Bugs character type. I mean, not that I would even know that, because I only watch sports and R-rated movies. Please, call someone else. Uh, our dad might be able to help. He and El Chapo broke out of prison together. Wait, dad and Uncle Chapo met in prison? <laughs> How is the experience of writing those difficult subjects in, but still making it funny? Yeah, I kind of used the litmus of things that we learned from making the Harold and Kumar movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, you know, it came out and did. it wasn't really a, a movie that people wanted to see in theaters. And when it came out, you know, we knew that a couple things. One, it was just a funny, dumb stoner comedy. But it was also the first time that you had two Asian-American men in a studio comedy, period. And when audiences didn't go to theaters to see it, the reaction in Hollywood was, well, see, America's just not ready for two men of color highlighting a, or, or leading a, a comedy. And you kind of start to believe that. Then three months later, the DVD comes out with no marketing. Fans find it themselves. And now we get to do three movies, right? So for Mm -hmm. Sunnyside, it was a similar thing. Like, what did we learn from that? We learned that, A, fans know more about what they like than marketing teams do. But, B, you can tackle issues that are sometimes really painful and really tough to deal with in a way that is both silly and accessible to people. So Mm -hmm. what was that episode of Hasan Minaj's show about the Indian elections a couple months ago? Mm -hmm. Like... Obviously, low-hanging fruit, very funny. He's a stand-up comedian, very, very smart guy. But a lot of foreign policy writers were writing about how, you know, it's crazy. Most Americans' only exposure to foreign elections are going to come 
from that show, mm-hmm. from that comedy show, because most of us don't read the New York Times or The exactly. Economist every day or every week. And, and so, yeah, to very long-winded way of saying we wanted to make sure that the stories that we told were, were authentic, but also mm-hmm. accessible enough if you want to watch it for comedic purposes, which is really our main <laughs> our main point in making it. But you're learning something while you're watching. You are right? learning it. Yeah, we also, one of the ways to do that was we when we were looking to staff the writer's room up, we wanted a diverse writer's room. Mm-hmm. Hollywood generally when they, and thankfully people are, are understanding the importance of diversity really in storytelling. Like the more diverse yeah. your writer's room is, the more interesting the stories are going to be. So usually Hollywood, the Hollywood version of diversity is like, look, we have one woman and or one person of color in a junior role in the writer's room. And then the Writers Guild will be like, yep, that's a diverse writer's room. Like, oh. no, that's tokenization. That's totally exactly. different. So for us, we wanted to be fully inclusive and we just cast a wide net and said, obviously you have to be funny first and foremost. The end result was that our writer's room is made up of everyone is either an immigrant or an immediate family member of an immigrant themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, All Americans, all extremely funny and smart. And it was a similar thing with our cast. So the reason I bring that up is in terms of how to how to tell stories about things that are tough like DACA or things that are crazy, by the way, we have two characters who are the, the twins of a billionaire dad mm-hmm. whose immigration experience is going to be very different than the DACA recipient. Mm-hmm. And in order to tell those stories in a funny way, you have to kind of put them all together. And so you've got to have a diverse writer's room that's lived those experiences. Definitely. That's uh, one of the things that popped out at me, too, is the, the different immigrant experiences, yeah. right? And the stereotype, I feel like, is really broken. When you see the group of immigrants that, you know, you were teaching the citizenship test to, (laughs) that, you know, we all don't look the same. We don't sound the same. uh, We don't have the same cultures or customs. And it seems like in the last few years, the rhetoric has been about just Latinos. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) As if we're the only immigrants that come to this country. Right. Well, there's also so much scapegoating that goes on, right? Mm -hmm. When you you quantify the immigration experience of immigrants. one group of people with a particular reason why folks might be doing that. Mm-hmm. I remember when um, I did, what, a little over two years at the White House, and in the middle I had to take a sabbatical to finish a film that I had started mm-hmm. before, the third Harold Decor movie, actually. And I was friends with this guy, and we filmed it in Detroit, and uh, there was this kid who I met who was undocumented, didn't know it. Your mm. classic story. Russian immigrant, his parents never told him they overstayed their visa when he's 16 or whatever it was. He went to the DMV to try to mm-hmm. get his permit to surprise everybody. And the woman said, you need to leave. You're you're not supposed to be here, whatever it was. He goes home and asks his parents. And his parents said, yes, you're undocumented. We didn't want to tell you. So cut to a few years later, he gets detained by ICE. And when he's in detention... The job he had when he got picked up by ICE was he was teaching English to inner city kids in Detroit. What a classic example of this random white dude who didn't know that he was undocumented, who was literally teaching English to other American kids and and was in ICE detention. He ended up getting out and, and he's he now has a pathway to, to be able to stay here. But that was, you know, like there's a reason that our character Brady, who's the DACA recipient in the episode that actually drops on Hulu today, mm-hmm. Is because of stories like that, you know? Yeah. 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 And uh, also the location, right, has a lot to do with Sunnyside. Um, it's actually AOC's district. It is AOC's district. Um, That's right. It is one of the most diverse urban areas. Yeah. So why did you decide to, to have it set there? Because So I, I know Queens enough. I grew mm-hmm. up in New Jersey, but we would, we would often go to Queens because back in the day, that was the only place that had Indian grocery stores. Mm-hmm. So you'd pack up <laughs> the car and take maybe once a month or whatever it was. <laughs> Uh, and I had aunts and uncles who lived there. But 
Queens is the most diverse place in the United States, mm-hmm. if not the world. There are mm-hmm. 200 plus language, languages spoken in that part of New York City. And it's a reflection on not just the world, but it's really a microcosm of the beautiful folks that coexist in the United States. Yeah. The, the rarity of that, right? It's a very patriotic place. It's also New York City. So you're walking down the street and people are ignoring each other. They're like doing everything that New Yorkers do. <laughs> But if you need something, they're there for you. And it, it seemed like a really fun place to set a show because you could authentically weave in and out of, of people's experiences. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I've only gone to New York once, and it was for the Queens Rally. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Good. Oh, yeah. I missed that. I wanted to go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to yeah. see a little bit of what it was like to be in New York. Yeah. But I definitely want to go visit now more often. And after seeing this show, I'm like, oh. Go experience it myself. So come to um, any of the street festivals or parades over the summer. Okay, they're they're pretty great. You were talking about how your latest episode of Sunnyside is going to be about DACA, mm-hmm. and you know it's such a historic time, I would say, and scary time for a lot of people, considering that the Supreme Court just listened to oral arguments. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know a little bit about what that was like to put all that together. You know, I, I for me it would be a very emotional thing, mm-hmm. um, but for you, what was what was that like? Um, it was very emotional <laughs> for us for a number of. reasons. Reasons. It's actually even in, in the sequence of how the episodes were shot, the doc episode that's uh, out now, actually, I realized it's it's after 3 p.m. here, oh. so it's out. <laughs> uh, so you can watch it on Hulu, NBC.com, Roku, YouTube TV, the free ones at NBC.com if, for folks who don't have Hulu. But the reason I, I, I'm doing the plug so hard is that I had never seen, and this is why I'm so proud that we accomplished it, and I, I did not write the episode, but I'd never seen characters talking about these types of issues in a comedy. And we wanted to make these conversations accessible. All of our characters are immigrants, and they are all deeply flawed as humans, as we all are. And we thought that was a really important thing to talk about, too, where we all have hopes and dreams and aspirations and things we screw up and things Mm -hmm. that make us angry, just like everyone else. And this notion that conversations about people of color or immigrants are bifurcated into either good or bad is so dehumanizing. John Cho, mm-hmm. who plays Harold in the Harold and Kumar movies, he I remember he used to talk about like the idea that any executive is proud that their show features a good Asian cop. Mm. Like, why? That's just as dehumanizing as making a long duck dong stereotype. Like mm-hmm. humans are are fleshed out and they have just as many flaws and aspirations. And so all of that are, those are all things we wanted to put into the episode. And so mm-hmm. the runner with the Brady character who comes out to his fraternity brothers as mm-hmm. a DACA recipient was done in a way where, you know, the character himself is struggling with his own identity, where he viewed himself as this American-born kid who's in this presumably, you know, very broy fraternity. Mm-hmm. So the DACA program is set up for children brought to this country without documentation. My mom brought me over here when I was two and she overstayed her visa, so... Technically, I wasn't legally here for most of my childhood. As a DACA recipient, Brady can't be deported, but there's also no clear pathway to citizenship. He's just sort of stuck. And since 2017, he can't leave the country if he ever wants to come back. I am sorry for lying to you guys. I just, I didn't know how you were going to respond. We're so sorry you've been dealing with all this. All this immigration stuff and you're dying of DACA? Dude, we've been so selfish. And he has to come to terms with himself. He has to, he talks about being embarrassed about being an immigrant. 
to his other immigrant friends who obviously, you know, like there's a scene, Samba Shoot plays a character named Hakim who's an Ethiopian doctor turned cab driver while he's awaiting on, you know, mm-hmm. getting his relicensing. He's a newer immigrant. My character was born and raised in New York. And then the Brady character is a DACA recipient from Moldova. And the three of them, the three of the, those characters have a conversation and they're each at different points in how they view themselves as Americans mm-hmm. and what they're embarrassed about in terms of their parents' identity or their ethnic identity or, or all of that. But it's done in such a dumb, funny way. It starts with the Brady character bringing a hammer to a bar and trying to convince Samba, who plays the doctor, to smash him in the face. Because if he's smashed in the face, then his fraternity brothers have an excuse for why he can't travel with them to Cabo for some spring break trip. When in reality, the reason he can't go to Cabo is because he's a DACA recipient and he doesn't know if he can get back in Mm -hmm. if he leaves the country. So something as dumb as like getting your face smashed with a hammer, which is where the comedy comes from. Mm -hmm. And then within that are the very real conversations that people sometimes have. So we're really proud of this episode. We've gotten a bunch of calls from people that we didn't expect. We have a panel in DC tonight with the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a very, you know, very old school Mm -hmm. think tank. They wanted to have a panel on immigration and DACA by screening the episode. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm just really glad that folks are talking about it, obviously selfishly because we love the show and we want people to watch it, but we're really proud that it's the most diverse show in the history of TV that if you've got friends on your college campus or your neighbors who don't understand what it is, I love that our show is an opportunity for people to sit down and binge three episodes together and then have a conversation like over a beer or something. Like that, mm-hmm. That's what I love about when, when comedy can do that. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of comedies I, I, I sort of gravitated towards as a kid. I love that you guys chose to highlight that specific instance because I, you know, I actually went through that. I lived in a very small conservative town in Arizona, mm-hmm. of all places. I had to lie a lot about yeah. who I was and uh, what my family situation was, which brings me to my next question of, what have you learned about the immigration system from putting Sunnyside together? Oh my gosh. The, well, a lot, obviously, but it's <laughs> it's also, you know, I think our biggest takeaway, look, we're, I keep repeating this because it's so true, we're an aspirational patriotic comedy, which means that our writers have to deal with things that I as an actor don't have to deal with. So I co-wrote mm-hmm. the pilot, but once we were in production, schedules are such that I'm producing and I'm acting, but I'm not in the writer's room. So if you ask actors... Our view of these scripts is so beautiful and inclusive, and we're so proud that we're telling stories that haven't been told on TV for our communities. Mm -hmm. And, by the way, for communities that don't look like ours. Like, if you're the standard Seinfeld audience from the 90s, I still think you're going to like Sunnyside. I really do, because that's (laughs) we we designed it that way. But if you want edgy TV that you haven't seen before, you'll definitely like it as well. So for us, it was more of like the rah-rah patriotism of – Yes, we're defining what we've always known to be American, which are our communities, too. Mm-hmm. But then you ask the writers, and they have to be really mindful of the constant, almost day-to-day changes coming out of this administration about immigration. And they need to track them because our characters are going through real immigration processes. Mm-hmm. And so they have to figure out, okay, did something just happen that's going to change the episode that we're writing wow. now that's going to air in two months? And by the time that airs, are things going to be different? Like. Obviously, we're fiction, right? We're a mm-hmm. fictional show. But we live with the understanding that reality exists. And so on my end, it's been an incredibly warm experience that is only a reminder, not that I needed one, of how amazing it is when all of our communities can come together for something. On the writer's side, I know it's also been very tricky because they have to constantly kind mm-hmm. of be mindful of the realities because we never want to, you know, 
I have to point this out. We're never a response to the current administration. Mm -hmm. We would just, I would never give that guy that much credit Mm -hmm. because we're so much better than that. But we also want to be mindful of it so that we can continue to empower our voices. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did did I say that in the right way? No, that definitely does, you know, and it reminds me a little bit about something Bernie said after the debate last night where we've been talking about impeachment so Mm -hmm. much, right? But what we must not do is let him consume us. Yeah, exactly. Right? Right. Let him consume us that we forget about the fight that is the long-term fight, which is for everyone to have healthcare as a human right and to be able to have affordable housing and to have access to education regardless of where they're from or how much money they make. Mm -hmm. And that if we let him consume that conversation, he wins again, Mm -hmm. right? And that's so important, what you just said. You've obviously been in the show business for a while and you've played several different roles. How do you think that that has evolved, you know, being in, in different roles and how things are perceived and how really society kind of, you know, has evolved, I would hope, mm-hmm. <laughs> since then, or maybe not. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, how has it changed? It, it depends. I, <laughs> I think what you what you see generally the last, like, 15 years, right, TV has been telling stories that are more and more insightful about just folks' experiences. It's diverse because audiences are finally demanding that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's also getting content's getting better because things are going moving away from networking into streaming. Mm-hmm. So even something like The Mindy Project, right, like 15 years ago, you couldn't fathom that a show like that would be on the air. Yeah. Um, Girls on HBO, I mean, similar to the Seinfeld model, it is a relatively homogenous group of people. But what an mm-hmm. incredible, funny, biting Female-driven, amazing show that even on HBO 20 years ago would it have would that have been possible? And Lena Dunham's writing and her, cre- her just her mm-hmm. creativity. So I'm very hopeful. Once things started moving on streaming, streaming isn't bound by the same rules as uh, as network. As we're learning, we we jumped from NBC to Hulu and NBC.com and mm-hmm. the app and Roku and like yeah. all the streaming stuff that people can binge on. And I think that's that's why you're seeing more of that content because people are able to access it on their own. You don't have to just sit there at a particular time at night when you're mm-hmm. going to be doing other things anyway. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that TV is going to continue to reflect more of our experiences overall. But it's there's mm-hmm. a long way to go for sure. Yeah. You know? And especially with immigration, one of the things that I've noticed, you know, with these streaming uh, services is like Orange is the New Black, for yeah. example, right? It talks about mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. It talks about immigration now in the last season and ICE detention centers and all of that. So I can definitely see what you mean about, you know, even having more control, right, of the fans can say, we want to see more of this or I don't see myself represented, which is important, mm-hmm. right? We can't dream something that we don't see. For sure. And <laughs> I think sometimes Hollywood gets confused. I mean, like I mentioned before, like the difference between tokenization and representation. And mm-hmm. at least on Sunnyside, we're not interested in tokenization. We're interested in true representation. And you can tell who's interested in that and who's not, right? Orange is the New Black is a great example. It's representative. Mm-hmm. It tackles issues. It really explores them. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there are other shows that maybe every so often there's an immigrant or a person of color or somebody who's not as wealthy as everybody else and you just get that tiny sliver only every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But I think we're moving in the right direction overall. We are. We are. And I mean, we have people like you, right, who are kind of on the political side of things and 
in the art world, right? Mm -hmm. Which I wanted to ask you about because it's so interesting to me. I love Designated Survivor. Thank you. <laughs> so the way that when I found out that you worked for the Obama White House, yeah. I was like, oh my God, is he like his character in the show? <laughs> <laughs> so what was that like? You know, how did you navigate those both worlds? To jump from the two. So yeah. I, I worked for... Um, I should probably address that, right? Okay, so for folks who don't know, yeah. I in 2006, all of the screenwriters in L.A. went on strike. I was on mm -hmm. a show called House at the time. Loved, Loved that show. it. I had a great time. <laughs> My family was finally excited that I was at least playing a doctor if I wasn't going to be one in real life. Uh, and... But all the screenwriters went on strike, so we couldn't film anything. And that was back when, similar to what you see now, it's actually almost exactly 12 years ago because I joined the Obama campaign. I want to say it was October of 07. So there were, what, 12 different candidates in the Democratic field, and it was a crowded place. And at that time, nobody knew his name. And I think it was only Obama and Ron Paul who weren't taking lobbyist money, mm -hmm. like which is crazy if you think about it now. Yeah. And people can pronounce his name, the whole thing, right? The whole standard, your standard primary conversation mm -hmm. when you when you have your candidate. And so I went to volunteer for him, and then he, he started winning states and ended up winning the nomination and then the presidency. So there was, there was an opportunity to work there for about two and a half years doing essentially what I had done on the campaign, which is outreach to young people, mm -hmm. Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, and the arts community. And loved my two and a half years, two, two, not quite two and a half, just under two and a half years. I loved it. Then I went back to my first love, which, of course, is comedy and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And four years into that, everybody thinks I jumped right from the White House to Designated Survivor. I did not. There were four years in the middle there <laughs> doing a couple of movies and, and things. But when the Designated Survivor script came around, I was like, I, I don't think I should do this. It's People are going to get confused. They're going to think that I just went from working at the real White House to a fake one. And then my agent says, uh, well, it's Kiefer Sutherland. I was like, wait, what? Kiefer Sutherland's in this? Mm, yeah, I should probably do it. Read the script again and realized the analogy is actually not that you went from the Obama White House to the Kirkman White House. The analogy is, okay, l let's say I was an airline mechanic, right? I was working on airplanes, on engines at, a, at an airport. And then I did a play in which I played a flight attendant, like off-Broadway. That's the difference. So I'm like, wow, I really don't know what a press secretary's job is. Like, you should tell me whether I did a good job in that role. I don't know what that's like. This was the, – the show started towards the tail end of the Obama administration, so I still had friends working in the building. And I, I asked Josh Ernest, who was the press secretary at the time, I was like, can I just, like, shadow you for a day? And he was like, yeah, man. Like, because I, we've worked – like, we've worked, what, 2,000 thousand feet away from each other for years, and I just don't know what your life is like. So you tell me whether wow. Seth was a good interpretation because the public engagement office was very different than uh, <laughs> Seth's world in Designated Survivor. Um, you did an amazing job, actually. Thank you. Okay. You definitely reminded <laughs> me of like the Obama administration. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> like, it was definitely very, you know, put together and like you were, you know, so loyal, right, to him. Well, but did <laughs> you see the, did you watch the Netflix episodes? Yes. Okay, because the, the jump, I felt like the jump from going from the two seasons on ABC to Netflix was like, we went from being buttoned up to very much like potty mouthed mm -hmm. people, which is also fairly authentic, I think. <laughs> They're definitely not angels in the White House. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's talk about Bernie. Yeah. Yes, Bernie. So 
you probably know or heard that we recently released our immigration plan mm-hmm. on the campaign. I am actually one of the DACA recipients that took part in writing oh, amazing. it. Yes. That's awesome. Um, so it was a long time coming. It was a labor of love. It was something that meant a lot to all of us who got together mm-hmm. on the campaign to write it. So what I wanted to ask you is what you think a priority for, for the next Democratic president should be on immigration, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of priorities. I mean, I, I remember uh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, mm-hmm. and I was excited to because I one of the things that I very, it's very fondly, long, by it's, the way. Right, no, I, it's going to take me a while to get through it. I mean, I'm going to look to your videos with like the explainer things on, on, on what's in it. But the DACA piece and, and the piece about our friends who are who are undocumented and who are living under a constant threat, mm-hmm. like day to day even, although now I guess we have to wait till what, April or June mm-hmm. for the Supreme Court verdict. But so I was at the White House when we were working on two things, the DREAM Act and Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't working specifically on immigration and I wasn't working on military or LGBT issues, but I was the president's point person for youth outreach. So mm-hmm. both of those things touched my desk in a per- little more than peripheral way. And I remember it was a Saturday when the votes were happening on both of those. Thankfully, Don't Ask, Don't Tell got repealed. But the DREAM Act failed by five Democratic votes. I remember. And I feel like Democrats are still nervous in talking about the fact that it was five Democrats who screwed it up. Mm-hmm. And and afterwards, we were obviously devastated. President Obama ha- had a positive outlook in saying, like, look, fi- five votes down is actually closer than this type of legislation has ever come. And so if you look at it historically, any time legislation like that has come up, this is now the closest, which means the mm-hmm. next person who is hopefully more progressive than Obama, these are now my views, that person can build on what the previous Democratic administration had done. And so when I have an eye on all these plans and quick fixes that were obviously imperfect that hopefully hold up in court, no Band-Aid fix is is ultimately like a full comprehensive immigration reform, which is still what we need. And I get frustrated because as a, the guy who was on outreach, I was like, who, those five people, by the way, none of them I think are still in the Senate, but those five. <laughs> not surprised. Not that they were. I don't know who replaced, <laughs> by the way. I, I didn't come prepared to, to remember exactly who the five were, so I can't say for sure if there's somebody better in their places now or not. But it's, it is important to remember that, you know, and especially when we're in a presidential election and somebody who's incredible, like like Bernie on a lot of these issues, mm-hmm. that the down-ticket candidates are really going to impact what actually gets passed and doesn't get passed. Definitely. Um, yeah. Definitely. And that's Bernie's mission, right, is to, he says, not me, us. It's, it's yeah. a movement, right? I can't, you know, just become president and fix everyone's problems. It's going to take all of us coming together yeah. to pressure the Steve Kings of the world, right, and um, the Mitch McConnells who yeah. are not letting us pass legislation to help these people. Or even the Chuck Schumers of the world, by the way, who oftentimes need (laughs) a a steady reminder that our communities exist. I actually got arrested in his office. Did you? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was a fun time. Fun time, fun time. So speaking of mobilizing people, what do you think is going to be the best and broadest way for us to talk about immigration to help those who maybe aren't on our side yet that we need, right? I think it depends on who you talk to, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I remember for so many people, there are conversations like you look at conversations on on just even something as simple as, as somebody's immigration status. Mm-hmm. And 
Oftentimes, people just have not considered that if you're the victim of violence and you're not documented and you don't live in a sanctuary city, that you can't come forward and report your crime to the police, which means that there's a criminal out there mm-hmm. who's going to keep doing this to people. And it's a public safety issue or the public health implications of something like that if you can't seek medical treatment or services. And I'm not really interested in the semantics of, of somebody who just goes, well, they don't deserve to be here anyway. Okay, that's that's fine. I totally hear what you believe. But the practicality is our folks are here. Mm-hmm. And when they are victims of crimes, what's your solution? And they have no solution, right? So I think having that tough conversation of like, I'm all, I'm all ears about your semantics, but I'm not interested in entertaining them mm-hmm. because I'm interested in hearing the practical solutions to things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had plenty of those conversations. Yeah. I was going to say, what do you think? I shouldn't be talking to you about my feelings. I should be asking you what the solutions are. You're you're working on them. Well, I definitely think that Bernie's plan is the most progressive, especially since it was written by people who will legitimately be impacted by the policies in that plan, right? And a lot of it is going to have to be done by executive action. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the urgency is that we can no longer wait, right, until Congress makes up their mind anymore. Mm -hmm. They've been promising us immigration reform for so long, right? And now it just seems like a false promise when that's all Mm. we hear. So I think that, you know, putting a moratorium on deportations until we can figure out, right, and audit Mm. these institutions that we don't know what it is that they're doing, expanding the DACA program um, to include the people who aged out of it, right? Right. A lot of those conversations are about improving, right, where we we are, taking things back. uh, So like Mm -hmm. the Muslim ban, right? Um, And so many executive actions that Trump made, but also going further than that and Mm -hmm. talking about the humanity of people, right? And I think that's why when I was watching the clips of Sunnyside is that is the human side of it, right? Is it's not just about not being deported. It's about economics. It's about, you know, having health care. It's about finding education. I think that's how immigration should be seen as it's a humanitarian issue not a criminal one right and it's i think it's hurt us more than it's helped us to criminalize people right well i mean if you count who it helps it helps you know a very wealthy few yeah yeah, who run stocks (laughs) who own stocks and you know many of the things that bernie's against but that's what it's going to take right you know, as someone who who worked at the White House under the the Obama administration, do you have any any advice? Oh my gosh! Well, look, I, <laughs> once we get there, do I, you have any advice for us? What I love about <laughs> what I love about the current primary campaign, right? Like, right? Look, so I haven't I haven't formally chosen a candidate mm-hmm. yet. Obviously, I am a fan of Bernie and and a select handful of others I, that I can count on half of my hand. <laughs> Um, but the reason is that, like you said, they're, they have the more progressive policies. And the one thing that I remember from the Obama campaign, not even the administration, was the President Obama used to say, you know, you have to aim very high mm-hmm. and then remember that the reality of a democracy is you don't always get everything that you want. But if you're not trying for it, then you're never going to get any of it. So I listened to moderate Democrats talk about reality or their version of reality. Well, this isn't realistic. That's not realistic. You know what's not realistic? Expecting to get anything done when you're promising nothing but the status quo. 
Exactly. It's insane. So that's no advice. I mean, Bernie and a handful of other candidates are already doing that where you're mm-hmm. like, they're aiming very high. And I, I was a Bernie surrogate in 16. And I remember during that primary, Bernie's college affordability plan, you know, free college, that was a big deal. And I was really, that, that was awesome. And to me, that was mm-hmm. the, that was the next step beyond, you know, in the Obama administration, we tried, we doubled the Pell Grant and we tried with the American Opportunity Tax Credit and, and things that were good, but should have been better. In retrospect, it's always funny when I hear people go, well, why didn't you do that? I'm like, well, there, look, there was no magic wand. You have to remember you still have to govern when you get there and you have to, mm-hmm. not everything can be done with executive order. And of course, every president and administration makes mistakes and you wish you had the hindsight to, to do things a little differently. Mm-hmm. I know in my case, when I started there, I assumed that other people, meaning other Democrats on the Hill or, or Republicans, were rational actors. And they're not. They're not necessarily looking out for the best interests of their constituents or their districts. All of which is to say it goes back to the college affordability thing. So so I thought that was awesome because I, th- I felt like it really built on some mm-hmm. of the things that Obama was attempting to do and had succeeded in some cases and had still left some space to grow in others. And then on the primary campaign trail, I remember people being, well, you know, college isn't free. Nothing's free. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Did you not hear the part about taxing rich people to pay for it? Because that's in there. You just got to read it. It's just I only have like 20 seconds. So I used free. Yeah. Like I used the word free college because it's easier to say. But no, definitely you're taxing rich people who can afford it so that we can all get access to education. And then when, when Hillary won the nomination, I ended up helping her out, her mm-hmm. versus Trump. And I remember being so glad. It was a big lesson for me, I think, when she took Bernie's college affordability plan. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. it didn't work out in the end, and you've got Trump in the White House. But I thought that that was, in terms of why big ideas matter, that you have somebody with, you know, she was farther to the right, obviously, on quite a bit, including education, and he was farther to the left. And once things got consolidated, the fact that she recognized that she needed to be farther to the left with a plan to make sure that young people are educated... I was really proud of that, and I thought that was amazing. And so I just think that constant reminder of like a glass half full example is dumb. I'm not going to do that. It's been overused. (laughs) But, you know, 50% is more than zero. So promising 1,000% of something and getting 500 is an enormous victory over the person who's promising 20% and delivering 2%. I agree. Yeah. 100%. So shoot for the stars. <laughs> yeah, of course. Shoot for the stars. Big ideas matter. Yeah. And they are practical when, when they're done in the in the right way and when there are people in the House and the Senate that support it. And we get a movement, right, yeah. behind us. That's exactly it. Well, I'll have to save my tips uh, from Seth later, I guess. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to be the press secretary for the White House. Um, I'll ask him offline. <laughs> um, but thank you so much yeah, for making you. the time to be here and tell us all about Sunnyside and you know how important this show is in this moment in time. I know I'm going to go watch it tonight. Well, thank you. And so. thanks for thanks for being so accessible and, and uh, developing, you know, thanks to Bernie also for developing the kind of campaign like this. I know a lot of us, like, I am politically aware, but the last six months of my life have been consumed by my job. And I know a lot of people who have three, four, five jobs and still make the time to to volunteer or do things for their candidate are, um, it's pretty amazing. So I think things like this that give people an opportunity to, you know, listen to a podcast like this when you're on your way to work or whatever. Mm-hmm. I know it, it helps folks sort through a lot of the noise. So uh, not that we were like, look, we're talking about a TV show today, but <laughs> but, it's but generally, you know, it's important to like to, to have that space. And so thank you guys for doing mm-hmm. that. 
Neil Patrick Harris stole my car tonight. NPH wouldn't do that, all right? Give me some ID. Excuse me, how can you give him a ticket for jaywalking? It's 2.30 in the morning and there's like, there's not a car around here. It's like he was causing trouble. Kamar, shut up. That's not the kind of tone you want to use in a cop to bust your ass. Bust my ass? Yeah, Kumar. Bust your ass. <laughs> what kind of name is that anyhow? So I'm here with some of the coolest kids on the left. I know you guys just did a video and record, but can you go around and just say your names into the mic? Hi, I'm Pujan Patel. I'm creative director of U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Hi, I'm Isra Hersey, and I'm partnerships director for U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Hi, I'm Philiquan Charlemagne. I'm the executive director of U.S. Youth Climate Strike. I'm Dalen Prochaska, political director of U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Okay, and so on average, how old are you guys? 17. Yeah, on average, like, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm 16. Oh. She's the youngest one. This is out of control. Like, so it's not often that you're sitting cross-legged on the floor with a bunch of people who are describing themselves as directors of this, that, and the <laughs> other who are only 16 or 17 years old. You guys are incredible. So what I should do is pick your brains about climate change and all these important things, but you just finished giving that interview. So I want to know is what you think Bernie should do social media wise to really connect with your generation. TikTok, 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 TikTok. Get on TikTok. Okay, so what should he do on TikTok? I think you know it could be an a, I think it could be an accumulation of things. I'm I want to see you know dance videos. I want to see <laughs> no, comedy. Literally. I want to see him do the trends where he's like you know talking. Just everything, like anything TikTok is, I want to see Bernie doing. You know that video of like ALC, like be like hi to Bernie, and the Bernie's like doing that pose. Yeah. That can you like, oh can you just man. recreate that? Because I have a screen grab of that, but like I want that on TikTok. So I heard somebody earlier say ASMR. For the old heads in the audience who are listening, what is ASMR? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Audio. Wait, I don't, I don't know the acronym, but it sounds like this, and you get tingly. <laughs> I, oh my god that's amazing so it's it's kind of like um sensations that you can create with the mic either by whispering or yeah. like crackling or eating pickles close to it right that kind of like make you feel good for like reasons okay i'm being told it stands for autonomous sensory meridian response okay i don't know i'm not a scientist <laughs> So what's funny is I did an interview in here a couple of weeks ago with the senator, and a lot of people responded to the podcast interview saying, Bernie's doing ASMR, just like naturally talking at a normal volume into the mic. So I feel like this, we might not be able to get him to do it, but he might just do it, and we can brand it, right? Pretend like the mic is broken, and just be like, you gotta like talk quieter. And just make him do it, and then you'll hear it, and then you guys can just brand it as like Bernie SMR and post it. <laughs> Get him like, really relaxed. Get him really relaxed, and just like he's all like, oh, you know, be quieter, you know, calm down. Now tell us about, you know, the, the billionaire class. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just casually put a jar of plastic pickles yeah. next to it. Do you mind oh eating this in the mic? Just, just no questions <laughs> asked. Just like slime, just like, just like, just like. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I want to see Bernie with slime. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna add it to the list. I can't make any promises. But here's the thing given that Bernie hasn't done any of that stuff, and there's some other candidates who have like had some dances, I won't name names, stuff like that, who aren't as popular <laughs> with younger people. Why do you think it is that despite not doing any of that stuff so far, he's so popular with the youths? 
I think it's his hair, honestly. I think we really like. <laughs> there's a certain, I think we like his hair. There's a certain vibe that Bernie has that the other ones can't really capture. Like I saw, there was that interview with Bernie where he like Bernie interviewed another version of Bernie. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. No other c- candidate could have done that. No other candidate could have done that. So there's something about Bernie's vibe and like the aura that he gives off that would make that so much more appealing than uh, some of the other individuals. Yeah, you guys agree? No, totally. Yeah. 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 It's the authenticity. Like in that room full of chairs with the pose again. Yeah, that's like like, stuff like that. Even when he was like trying to be fake, like he couldn't do it right. Like he couldn't, he couldn't fake being fake, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, where where are you from? Oh, you're in Iowa too. Like he couldn't even do that. Like he's way too real, and that's what it's like. It's appealing in a way. Yes. Okay, you see like the letters. It's like U W U. It's like a little cute face. Like, it it's looks like, like yeah, it looks a like a face. Like, so it's like, it's a, like a cat almost. It's I like have a cat. never. You never. So Wait, what? Wait, what? It's like, no, it's like almost like ironic like, though. Like don't use like, that. Like don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it realistically. But if you were to do it ironic somehow, then you can do it. Yeah. It's very confusing. This is such chaotic energy right now. Like I'm like. Oh Tired. Can we come back here and do a fully fledged podcast though? A hundred percent. Oh my like, gosh. Like a hundred percent anytime. Can you come? Are you guys ready? Yes! 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 I don't know if we're going to have time, like, honestly, though. Like, I want to be like, like, we have to, like, actually organize. Is Sunday a possibility? Wait, what what times do you guys have? Whenever. I'm around all day. We can, can we do Sunday? Is that a possibility? We could do it. We could definitely do it. Sunday, wait, Sunday. There's a lot of time in the day. We could do Sunday. That's when we do Sunday. So we can do Saturday night. We can do it. We'll find we'll time. Yeah. We'll, we'll, find we'll find time. We'll find time yes. to do this podcast. Okay. So it's no doubt. So important well, this right is the teaser to end all teasers. So I can't wait to see you guys and hang out again. <laughs> yes. um, and maybe talk about something a little bit substantive at some point. Um, this is all substantive. Yeah, no, what no, are you talking no. about? Uh, TikTok is eat a pickle in front of a mic, though. Like, I'm thinking <laughs> about it realistically. And, like, I, the first time like, I tried a hot pickle, it was like yes. a few, like, bro, uh, two weeks ago, me and Feli, he picked me up from my house. We went to Circle K. I got a hot pickle. And listen, 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 listen. It was transformative. That was my first time. And I want Bernie to have that same experience because, dude, it was amazing. Like, wait, can we have hot pickles and eat them on the pod? Yes! 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 Please. Well, I, I love hot it. Pickles. I love it too. Before I put hot pickles in front of Bernie, I feel like it's my obligation. It's my professional obligation to first eat a hot pickle mm-hmm. myself, yes. vet the hot pickles, yeah. and then tell him whether it's a good political move. Yes, yes. That sounds like the pitch for it. Yeah, that sounds like I'm a pitch for an interview. <laughs> pickle, hot pickle hot is my only issue. I need Tears' opinion on the hot pickle. So tune in to an upcoming episode of Hear the Burn, where we will hear us eat, discuss, and vet hot pickles for Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please, please, please remember to like, review wherever you're listening to this content. This is a week here at the end of the year where we're seeing a lot of these best of podcast lists. And if we're able to get our stuff to spike on iTunes or any other platform, then maybe we have a shot of getting ourselves out there and advancing the cause of the revolution. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll see you next week.